and she made a comment. She said, well, we all have experiences and challenges, baggage and drama. And I replied, well, yes and no. We all have experiences and challenges. That is absolutely true. Baggage and drama, however, (laughs) are optional. Yes. It's all in how you look at it. Welcome to Grit, Grace, and Inspiration. I'm your host, Kevin Lowe, and I'm excited to welcome you inside. What's going on? And welcome back to the podcast. My name is Kevin Lowe, your host, as well as transformation coach. And today, hey, it's episode number 195. Hopefully you're having an amazing day. And the whole point of this podcast is in case you're not having an amazing day, well, I want to make it better. Or maybe the day's just getting started for you. So you really don't know if it's going to be amazing or not. Well, why not set the stage with a conversation like this one? Because I'm in the studio today with a guy named Clay Boatwright. And Clay is an amazing guy with an incredible story. Incredible because, well, it's life. And rarely ever is life easy going. No, life has its ups and downs. It has its love and it has its losses. It has the good days and the bad. And Clay's story is no exception. Clay is the author of a book called God's Plan, Our Circus, a title that totally resonated with me as soon as I heard it. Clay He's got a story that's truly heartfelt. It's probably one of my most favorite interviews that I've done because we get to hear this man's story, the story of a man, of a husband, of a father, all wrapped up into one beautiful story. You're going to get to hear about his wife, Carol, and about their family, but you're also going to get to hear about cancer and the loss of his wife. You're also going to get to hear about when things don't go the way we think they're going to. When starting a family all of a sudden comes with other things that we didn't expect. Because, well, when we start a family, you of course think everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be just as you had ever dreamed it would be. Well, maybe it's not. And maybe though, that's okay. Because, well, it's all part of the plan. After all, it's God's plan, our service. My hope with today's episode is that it just has you left thinking a little bit more about life, a little bit more about what matters in this life. And I guess we have Clay Boatwright to thank for that because he is the star of today's show. And I'm excited to introduce him to you. God has a plan for all of our lives, and our challenge or opportunity is to identify what is that plan and then to bring it to fruition. But God's plan may be different than our plan, what we want. And sometimes God being smarter than we are, we need to get over it. And and God's plan sometimes doesn't look exactly the way we want it to. That's his sovereignty of being God. And and from our standpoint, our, our layman standpoint, human standpoint, it can be crazy. It may not make any sense. It may be a, an absolute circus at times. 
And sometimes we have to get through the storm to see the the sunlight on the other side uh, for it to really make sense. So uh, that's what it means to me is that God does have a plan for all of our lives. And sometimes that plan may not necessarily look like what we would have charted out. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. It means that we uh, we need to step up and get through it and hopefully get through it with a smile. Yeah, well, I love that so much. So, Clay, thank you, you know, for setting the stage with us on that. Now, kind of unpacking your story, you know, for, for me and my audience, looking back at your life, kind of before you ever met your wife and began your family, what did life look like for you before that? chapter in your life? Yeah, I was blessed to uh, be able to live at home all through uh, college and, and grad school. So I graduated high school a year early, undergrad a year early, and then uh, graduate school a year early. So I had my grad degree at 21, moved out of my uh, parents' house, finally. Uh, I was the last one out, so they were you know, quite relieved to finally reach the <laughs> empty nest stage. And I uh, had a grad degree in marketing, so I'm going to go out and Take on the world from a, a consumer packaged goods marketing standpoint and yeah, hopefully make a lot of money and be successful and business success and all that, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what, where my goals and objectives were. And I was, again, 21 years old at the time. As interesting timing would have it, quite literally the same week I moved out of my parents' house into my first apartment, I had my first date with the woman I would marry three years later and then spend you know, the next 33 years with. So I, I jokingly say I went from one domineering woman to another domineering woman in the, in the course of four days. And so, so when you, when you, when you ask the question, what did, what did my life priorities and so on look like prior to meeting my wife? It was an interesting week, you know? <laughs> was about it. Wow. Well, well, you know what? I, I guess that meant that they helped to keep you out of trouble. That's exactly how that is. There is so much truth in that statement. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> and considering the amount of trouble I can, get, I, I do get in, I, I mean this quite literally, Lord only knows what, <laughs> what it would have happened without. Yeah, that is so funny. Now, at the time when, when you guys met, where were you guys living? We were both from Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. So born okay. and raised in Memphis. Went uh, to both went to college at what was then known as Memphis State. It's now known as the the University of Memphis. And uh, I had just gotten out of grad school. Uh, Carol was finishing her undergrad. And we met through a mutual friend and um, pretty soon uh, found ourselves within a a couple of weeks dating each other exclusively. And and soon thereafter, life starts happening. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, at some point, you guys would would end up choosing to to move in would end up in Texas. How did that all come to be? So it was a kind of a, a traditional deal following jobs. So uh, got married uh, after meeting uh, you know, three years earlier. Uh, we married a year after that. We moved to St. Louis for my job. I, I got a job uh, at the old Ralston Perina company in St. Louis. We were there about uh, two and a half years. During that period of time, uh, right after we moved there, Carol was diagnosed with her first cancer, which is uh, Hodgkin's disease, which is a form of lymph node cancer. So she went through chemotherapy uh, there and recovered fully. But our, uh, you know, still being relatively young, our first move away from home, a month or two later, she's diagnosed with, with cancer. We're like, well, St. Louis is a nice town, but interesting. <laughs> Not quite what we planned on. <laughs> so um, a couple of years later, had the opportunity to uh, move to Houston with uh, the Minute Maid division of Coca-Cola. So another job transfer. Went to Houston, was there for two and a half years, and then transferred here to the Dallas area. 
and thought, well, we live in Dallas three or four years, and then I'd probably get a job either within Coca-Cola or some other company, and, and we move again. And lo and behold, I've been in Dallas for 25 years. So it's funny how those, <laughs> those plans net out. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So along this journey, you, you mentioned that she had cancer. Was that before you guys had your first daughter? Yes. So Carol was diagnosed with Hodgkin's a little over a year after we married. We went through six months of chemotherapy and again, uh, recovered fine. And our uh, doctor suggested that we wait at least five years before having children just to you know, get the chemicals out of our system and, and all that kind of stuff. And during that period is when we wound up moving to, uh, to Houston. As it turned out, we were married about eight years, eight and a half years before Blair, our oldest daughter, was born. And she was born here in the Dallas area. Okay. Okay. What was it like for you becoming a father? Oh, man. It was all the stories you, you hear about how it changes your life and perspectives change and, and so on was, was very, very true. I share in the book when we went for the first ultrasound and I'm sitting in the, the lobby. Now it's more common for the dad to be in the, the room for the ultrasound. That time I was sitting in the lobby and stenographer comes out and the sonographer rather, and uh, shows me the little picture. And at that point, you know, I, I was in love. I, I was done. And uh, all priorities shifted. So I mean, family was always important. But at that point, I realized that uh, my, my purpose in life was to care for uh, a little peanut, I called it, a little peanut <laughs> in that picture, and, and her mom and, and any future peanuts. And uh, the, the career thing, it was important, but it, it was much more, it's, it's only reason for the career was to put a roof over our head and food on our table. Uh, that's not where my self-realization, my self-actualization was not going to come from how I paid my bills. It was going to come from my family and my faith. By that point, I was getting much more stronger in the faith. And um, I, that's, where, that's where I started to get aligned. But it was definitely becoming a father is what kind of kicked me over the edge on that. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you guys had your first daughter, did you guys have plans of always having more children? Well, we always envisioned two as a good number, a manageable number. My wife was an only child. I was one of three. So you split the difference. You get two. Yeah, ma maintain, <laughs> maintains population. You know, you, know, you kind of keeps the population steady over the long term. And uh, so that was our, our thought. And I guess ideally, if we're going to have a girl first, we're thinking, oh, it'd be nice to have a boy second. But then again, you know, God has plans different than we do. And uh, three years later, uh, we wound up having twins. And at that point, we're like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> we're we're, we're, we're one, one ahead of the game here. So we're going we're gonna to call it quits on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Too funny. Now, now, the twins that you had, talk to me about them. So uh, Paige and Mia mm -hmm. are my identical twins. And they... Uh, are completely identical inside and out. So it's very hard to tell them apart uh, visually, but uh, developmentally, they would eventually become diagnosed with autism and severe intellectual disabilities. And in looking back at it, like looking at, at Carol's pregnancy with Blair, it was like the smoothest, smoothest in the world, no issues whatsoever. And then Blair was born and constantly smiling and happy and upbeat. And so it was great. But we were also smart enough to realize that lightning doesn't strike the same crib twice, right? <laughs> so we're thinking to, to, to get this lucky again, not really expecting you know, huge challenges, but 
know, it's, it's natural. Not all babies are smiling and happy. So twins were born. And looking back in hindsight, Carol's pregnancy was fraught with many more issues, almost almost from the point of conception. She just had a, a series of medical issues of having to go into the hospital and, and different things. Then the twins were born and we brought them home. And at first they wouldn't nurse. So that was that was a challenge. And then cried a lot. Just it was much more, much more difficult uh, pregnancy and uh, and early years of bringing them home. Then I guess it was it was a two year. It was a two year well baby visit when we uh, go to the pediatrician and uh, we go in there and Carol's holding one twin. I'm holding the other. And uh, they have this developmental checklist, developmental milestone checklist that you go through when you've got infants, young kids to see how they're developing. And Carol's you know, filling it out for I think she was holding Paige. I think I was holding Mia. So we're filling it out for the respective child we're holding. And we get to the, the bottom of the list and we realize that neither one of us has checked anything off. And we're like, oh, well, this probably is not good. So our uh, pediatrician uh, sent us over to Easter Seals, who did an assessment on Paige and Mia. And that's where they got their original diagnosis when they were two, which uh, really was very surprising because we had been told that yes they they were developing slowly and uh, they had they were not crawling yet and there was no uh, verbalization they they weren't using words yet or anything like that but everyone said oh, yeah they're twins they were born premature uh, it's not unusual just kind of wrote it off to that but uh, at this point now we had a, an actual diagnosis that uh, it, things were going to be a, a little more uh, non-traditional than we thought mm. and what were what were you and your wife going through at that moment well, I mean, there was a um, a lot of challenges uh, in the book. I described the uh, um, stages of grief. So you go through the denial stage and you go through the bargaining stage and you go through the anger stage. And uh, eventually, hopefully, you wind up in the acceptance stage. And I got to the acceptance stage much quicker than than my wife did. And that's not to say there weren't times where I was mad. And, and I've got a, a testimony when I... Uh, I share about being mad at God one night and uh, what came out of that. It was, it was difficult. And plus just raising three children and two of them being twins. So, you know, we, we had uh, three children you know, under the age of basically under the age of three. So that's just natural chaos, even if you don't bring a, a diagnosis <laughs> into the mix and, and, and plus working and, and so on. So it was, it was, it was a little crazy. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, at what point, I guess, I'm going to, because the autism spectrum, it's a wide spectrum. Mm -hmm. At what point did you guys realize the the degree that, that your daughters had? We didn't have that realization for quite a while. And early on, and I think it was, we were still in the denial stage. So the, uh, the doctors and the pediatric neurologists and so on were, were giving us diagnoses. But you know, when you're two years old, two and a half, it's really hard to gauge what things are going to look like down the road. So they kind of caveated everything. And if you, if you think about, if you look at development, if you think of, uh, say, have two children, one who does not have a diagnosis, who's developing traditionally, and then another child who does, and, and you start at point zero being birth, okay? Well, at point zero, day one, those two lines, those two developmental paths are basically the same. And then time goes on and the traditional path goes as it goes. And then the, 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 the one that has a disability starts to veer off that path. Well, 
it, it's like, and that's just it, it's veering off. And so in the early stages, you really can't tell the difference between a child that has a traditional uh, development path versus one that, that, that's non-traditional. But as time goes on, as that divergence continues over time, eventually the, the gap gets bigger and bigger as, as time goes on. So at birth, you don't see a gap. At age two, we saw the gap, as pointed out by the, uh, the checklist that we were going through. But then as time continued to progress until they were three, four, five, six, seven, and so on, then you realize their path is significantly farther off than the, uh, the traditional one. So there were a lot of frustrations. Uh, we started reaching out to different organizations to, uh, to learn about autism and to learn about developmental disabilities and what services there were or <laughs> what services were not there and just kind of figure it out as we go along. I mentioned a moment ago being mad uh, at one point and being uh, mad at God. I had a, a aha moment that occurred when the twins were about four years old. And I, uh, it was a Friday night and everybody was upset. So Paige and Mia were, were having meltdowns. Blair was what, seven years old, I guess, at the time. And she was upset because her sisters were upset and her mom was upset. And so everybody's crying and, and feeling, feeling terrible. And I'm sitting there, so as the, the father leader of the family, you know, I take a, a strong leadership move, and I go to bed. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I, everybody's upset. At the end of the day, they're safe. They're fine. I can't fix it, so I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. So I go to bed, and I'm laying there, and uh, like I said before, I was mad. I was mad at God. And I'm saying a prayer, and I said quite literally, you know, God, why'd you do this to Paige and Mia? You know, why were they born with a disability or if it was developed later? Why, why didn't he intervene? You know, why did you do this to Paige and Mia? And to be blunt, why'd you do this to me? And that was the question that was on my mind as I fell asleep. So why did you do this? And uh, I don't usually go to, to bed mad, go to sleep mad. Uh, if I do, it's, it's almost like the emotions marinate overnight and I wake up almost madder <laughs> the next morning. <laughs> but that night was different. On Saturday morning, I woke up full of energy, ready to take on the world. I describe it as waking up like on a, a mountaintop on a bright spring day. You've, just, you've got wind in your sails and you're, you're just ready to take on the world and you're full of excitement. And the very first words that entered my mind were, to help people like Paige and Mia, which I immediately interpreted as helping people with severe disabilities like they had. Yes. So it's important to note that given my mindset at the time, so being kind of mad about the whole situation, I was focused on my family. I wasn't you know, thinking about others. I wasn't, you know, I was focused on maintaining my family, my career, all those types of things. There is zero doubt in my mind that. I fell asleep asking God a question, and he sent the Holy Spirit and answered it, because there is no way, given my priorities and mindset at the time, that I would have cooked that answer up on my own. Absolutely yep. none. There's no way I would have answered my own question with, oh, God did this to help other people. That, that would not have been in my mindset. So I woke up, had that, that thought, the answer to the question, and really two great things happened at that moment. Number one was, it happened. Number two was, I had the wherewithal at the time to realize that it had just happened and to piece together that basically God answered my question. So I laid there on the bed and thought, wow, 
this is big. <laughs> um, what, uh, <laughs> what do you do? So I, I did what at that time millions of people were, were starting to do when they had questions and, and issues to be addressed. I uh, got up, went to the family computer and typed four words. And uh, please forgive that this was the vernacular at the time. So diagnoses have, have changed. The, the terminology has improved over time. Uh, now we use the phrase, uh, the terminology, intellectual disabilities. But their original diagnosis at that time was uh, mental retardation. So I sat at the, at the computer and I typed mental retardation, Dallas, help, four words, and hit enter. Up on the screen came uh, an organization I'd never heard of before called the Ark of Dallas. I went on their website and I'm like, okay, well, this looks like an organization that helps people like Paige and Mia. And uh, long story short, contacted them on Monday, was on their board of directors two weeks later, and soon got involved in the statewide organization, uh, the Ark of Texas, uh, meeting a lot of legislators, meeting elected leaders, the uh, people at state agencies down in Austin. And uh, within about, I guess it was nine years, I was appointed by President Obama to a presidential advisory committee in Washington So, for people with disabilities. So what started off as me asking God a question on a Friday night launched an entire series of experiences, the goal of which to help people with the disabilities like my children, that never would have happened. I don't believe ever would have happened had I not asked God that question falling asleep on a Friday night. <laughs> wow. And and I go back to the thing that, that always is God certainly does work in mysterious ways. Oh, absolutely. And and it's very rare in ways that we would expect it to happen. <laughs> he, he, he's really good, really good at catching us by surprise. <laughs> yes, extremely good at that. Yes. Now, during this whole time, the advocacy work, your wife, was she on board with it? Was she apprehensive about it? How was she? The advocacy work? Yes. She was fine with it. So our house was pretty crazy. I referred to it as the Boatwright Circus. So there, <laughs> that's that's part of the origins of the, the title of the book. They got to find our circus. So it was the Boatwright Circus. And uh, just raising you know, three children and then Paige and Mia's disability and all the uh, doctor issues and therapies and everything associated with that. She had, by that point, decided to, to stay home So uh, and, and, and take care of the family. She stopped her career. So um, that's where, where her efforts and, and time was. And when it came to my advocacy work, which I was doing in parallel with my professional career, I mean, she thought it was fine. I mean, it, if, if it, when I would learn things that would benefit our family, that made it more meaningful. I think in some ways she almost viewed it as uh, my, my hobby <laughs> in a way. I mean, she wasn't opposed to it. But again, she was understandably very engulfed in the day-to-day -day caregiving activities of, of our family. And, uh, and then when I could learn something or discover something and, and bird dog something that would, uh, would make our lives easier, that's when it really became more meaningful for her. Yeah, yeah, understandable, understandable. So now we kind of fast forward through, through life and kind of switching back years, I guess, from your daughters to, to your wife. At some point in time, your wife would be diagnosed with cancer again. Yes. So we had the original diagnosis, which then launched you know the, the, the craziness of raising the kids. So I was doing, also doing my advocacy work, as I described, and was learning about the support system and what's available. And one thing, another kind of revelation, I guess, that happened was okay. on, the, on the day that Paige and Mia started kindergarten, 
I remember this clearly. We, we took him to the elementary school, which was the same school that the Blair was attending. So we take everybody to school that, that first day of, of kindergarten, take him in and Blair goes off to her his third grade class and, and uh, attendants come and help uh, with, with Paige and Mia, uh, the paraprofessionals. And I remember walking back to the car with Carol and, and telling her this, something that just hit me. And number one, two things hit me. Number one was there were people in this world much better skilled and trained to teach folks like Paige and Mia, much better skilled and trained than Carol and I were. And those people are found in the public school system. And that that's a really big deal because Paige and Mia's disability was and is so severe that any other, most organizations would, would never consider working with them. Uh, and that includes uh, other schools, a lot of therapy clinics and so on. Many places wouldn't touch them because of the severity of their disability. Because when you think about it, if, if you're running a, a, a private organization or you're running a clinic or so on, you want to bring in people who you believe will be successful in your program, who will benefit from it. And very few organizations, and when I say very few, I mean like none, thought that they could make a significant impact on Paige and Mia's development, so they wouldn't, wouldn't even try it. Public schools are different. Public schools and emergency rooms, okay, hospital emergency rooms. Public schools and emergency rooms are the only two enterprises in the United States legally required to take everybody who walks or rolls in the front door. Mm-hmm. They cannot turn anybody away. And hospitals can send their patients out once they're stable. Public schools can't. They have to keep them for the long haul. That makes them unique. And when you're the father of two children, who nobody would touch with a 10-foot pole, that's a really big deal. Okay, that's a really, really big deal. So that was the first thing. The second thing that hit me was, holy crap, this train's going to stop someday. You know, they're not, they're not going to be in school until they're 90 years old, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. And, and I would find out you know, fairly soon thereafter that they uh, would be, given their disability, would be able to stay in, in school here in Texas until the year they turn 22. So they age out of school at 22. Okay. So you do some do some quick math in the head, and I realized, well, they're, physically they're they're pretty healthy, so they're probably going to have a natural lifespan. Well, they're going to live a lot longer outside the school system, you know, as adults than they yes. will in school. So as their father, I needed to get ahead of the curve to understand what does that adult system look like, yes. and what do I need to know in order to prepare them and prepare us for. When they when they transition out, when they move on to the next stage, and so that that was so that was also kind of timed with me getting I was already getting involved in the advocacy world, so I was in a in a great place to learn those types of things, and I uh, pretty soon realized that I'd go into different meetings either here in Dallas or in Austin or whatnot, and many times the other people around the table were either being professionals, so professionals in the industry, professional advocates, and so on or volunteer parents and the parents and, and, and self-advocates as well, uh, of course, but also, but on the, but on the parents side, they were all parents whose kids were in their twenties and thirties and so on. And here I am with two eight-year-olds, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was very, very unusual. And, uh, and I consider it a blessing to have had that kind of revelation that day because so often parents will wait until their children are teenagers or late teens and getting ready to transition out of school or, or leave home. And they're like, well, what happens now? Yeah. And in Texas, and this is true in other states as well, some other states, but in Texas, 
if if you're waiting to that point, the train is train's gone. You're gonna it's, you're gonna have to wait 15 years before the next train shows up to help you because of waiting lists that we have for disability services and, and, and so on. And uh, and I didn't want to be yeah in that situation. So I started learning the the, the system early, and uh, also Carol and I. It's funny. I, I say this jokingly. I, I refer to uh, as parents that we suck, which we didn't. But but I, I look at what I always refer to well, what the good parents do. So so the good autism parents, you know, they've got the, the therapies every other day and they've got, you know, the schedules in their kitchen and they've got the little pennies for incentives and all this. We never did that stuff. It was just like, but that's what the good parents do. You know, we're like, and, and, and to be quite honest, it was, it was because Paige and me, is just, it just wouldn't resonate. That was the main Yes. Reason. But in, in that whole good parent, bad parent thing, there are a lot of uh, parents, and I, I respect this, totally respect it, understand it, who their operating philosophy is that their child will, with a disability, will, will live with them kind of forever or will live with them for as long as possible, which is very commendable. Uh, and, and I understand that. Carol and I never, never had that belief. My thought was everybody kind of needs to get at some point, grow up and, and move out. And you know, why should Blair, the oldest one, why should she be the only one lucky enough to get away from me? Right. Yeah. So I was always looking at what are the uh, residential options or what are the other options that are, are out there for Paige and Mia when such time comes along that. Carol and I are, are no longer able to uh, to take care of them ourselves, and we ran out of gas when uh, when they were about close to seventeen. It's arguably is, is still a little young, but again, we had not one but two children, severe disabilities, very time intensive, physically labor intensive, uh, and we did have some help at home, but but we finally just and I refer to it as running out of gas, and uh, and even though I was heavily involved in the system, it still took me a year and a half to find a provider service, a disability service provider who was willing to work with them because of the, the severity of their disability. So then that's when they eventually moved out. Wow. 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 I mean, I commend both of you though. I mean, as you said, I mean, it's not easy, but the fact that, you know, you guys did it for that long. And I mean, we're talking about full-time care here, you know, and I just, I mean, I have to applaud you both as parents for not only taking care of your, your children, but for putting their best interests at heart as well as your own. Well, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And a couple of things come to mind. Number one, the uh, family caregivers families are the predominant caregivers in the United States. And we as a society and a lot of uh, government support programs and so on are, are being better structured to support family caregivers. And they should be because families, uh, and you see it on both ends of the spectrum. It's not just parents taking care of children with disabilities. You see it the other way. You see couples caring for their aging parents yes. uh, at home. So you see the sandwich generation uh, that many people will eventually be in where you're, you're sandwiched between taking care of your own kids as well as taking care of your own parents. So, so helping the families maintain themselves is a huge deal. One of the things we have to be careful, though, is that we don't want that to be the expectation because not every person is skilled and geared to be the greatest caregiver for either their child or their aging parent. 
if they choose to, that's great. But and if they have that ability, that's great. But it shouldn't necessarily be expected. There's been several analysis, analytical rigor has gone through to come out and say that family caregiving is the the primary objective for a lot of families. And that's not necessarily true. It's happening not because everybody thinks it's the best option. It's happening because it's the only option for a lot of people and they don't have any other choice. So you, that's that's where they, they go with it. So a uh, big part of my advocacy is trying to get systems changed and get structures changed so that uh, there are different options out there for people, for families, based on the unique family dynamics that they have and the unique needs of the person who needs care, whether it be a child or a young adult or adult with disabilities or even a, someone who's elderly who needs help. What different options are out there that best fit that unique person and that unique family dynamic, as opposed to assuming, well, you know, Joe and Jane, husband and wife, they're going to do it until the day they die. And that's also another another thing to keep in mind. And I've, I've talked to parents very bluntly about this in the past. And that is, we can have the best positive intent on wanting to, to care for our, our child at home, which is super. And uh, that's great. But each one of us will do something horrible. And, and shame on us for doing this. But every one of us someday is going to die. Mm-hmm. And there's no, no getting around it. And when that day happens, are people prepared for it? And one of the things I wanted to, to do, and, and this is really in the interest of Paige and Mia, was to help figure out what's the best scenario for them while, while I'm still here and, and still young enough and energetic enough to, to be able to help craft it and supervise it and, and so on, as opposed to waiting until I pass away and then Blair suddenly has to make decisions on behalf of her sister. And and decisions made in a crisis, urgent crisis situation are almost always going to get hosed up in some way. So, so there was a level of, of long-term planning that went into that along as well. Yeah. I mean, again, I just, I just, I, I listen, I think just how admirable of you. And I mean that with just the utmost sincerity. So we kind of looking back at this kind of timeline. So here the, the girls have have now moved out. They're in a home. Mm-hmm. So, kind of what happens at that point for for you, for for your wife, you know, for your older daughter. So Blair had uh, gone off to college by that point, so she went up to uh, Oklahoma State, and pretty soon thereafter is when Carol and I realized that uh, I use the phrase "we're running out of gas" that we needed to pursue uh, something for Paige and Mia, and finally got a, a group home developed for them, and uh, so got them moved out. And uh, and their group home, the first one, was very close to our house. It was like less than a mile and a half away, which was nice because it enabled us to be close enough to check in on them and help with transition. And and I think it was good for everybody to have them pretty close uh, at first. And it's kind of funny because I mentioned that Carol had had decided to stay home and to to take care of the, the kids. Well, Blair's birth date is March 13th, just for what it's worth, was, was March 13th. So she, uh, so Carol officially became a stay-at-home mom on March 13th, 1997, the day Blair was born. Carol staying home. Three years later, the twins were born. Pretty soon, they're diagnosed. The circus is up and running. Everything's going crazy. We uh, get the, uh, the kids out of the house. Our Blair goes off to college. We get the group home set up, you know, eventually. And then Carol decides to go back to work. And she was very excited about this. 
Okay. So she goes back to work right after we got the twins set up in their group home. And it just so happened her first day of work was March 13th, 2017. So Blair was born <laughs> March 13th, 1997. Carol went back to work on March 13th, 2017. She was a stay-at-home mom literally 20 years to the day. <laughs> 20 years to the day, she was technically a stay-at-home mom. So she's all excited. So she goes back to work March 13th, 2017. Having been out of the workforce for 20 years, things changed a little bit. You know, uh, Microsoft Excel has had a few uh, few updates. You know? <laughs> Word's not quite the same version it was back uh, yeah, back in the day. Lotus Notes, what the heck was that? You know, I mean, yes. that, that's no longer part of it. So, so she had a, a learning curve with uh, modern technology and so on, and uh, starting in March, and then uh, June rolls around a few months later, and uh, she uh, called me and said well, something doesn't feel right, um, just didn't. Wasn't she called me from work? Something didn't feel right, so she uh, went to the doctor. And long story short, come to find out that she had uh, ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, she went had surgery. Thought they got it all. Had a after the surgery, a few months after the surgery, they did a test. Thought they had it all. Then six months later, after that test, so in January of getting my years confused here, but so January she had her her test. Everything was clear. June of that uh, same year, again wasn't feeling well. Almost passed out of work go to the doctor and find out that she has a five pound tumor has come back. So Uh, it went from nothing to five pounds in the course of six months. So she went on 18 months of chemo and she kept having different variations of chemo. So they would try something and didn't work, then try something else. So went through five different variations and ultimately it was uh, not successful. Wow. So that, so that was kind of a, well, obviously losing my wife was, was was difficult. And I was about to say, it's a bummer not to minimize it, but, but the fact that she was so excited about going back to work and then soon thereafter getting diagnosed, the, that was a shame. I, that was very disappointing because I know she would have enjoyed a few years of uh, true independent freedom during that period. Wow. So as of today, the day that we were recording approximately how long ago was it that she passed away? It was a little over three years. Wow. So it was February 11th, 2020. So this was interesting. She passed away February 11th, 2020. And Blair and I, we've, we've say joked about it, but we've laughed how it's interesting. She never, Carol never heard the words COVID-19. <laughs> the, the concept of a pandemic never hit her. I mean, she passed away right before it happened or right before, you know, it was really going rampant. And in a weird sort of way, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sorry she, she's gone. I miss her. I'm kind of glad she didn't have to go through that because she would have thought the whole world had lost its mind. Yep. <laughs> and, and that, that's probably a podcast for another day. But yep. um, but in just in terms of uh, behaviors and so on, I mean, her, her, Carol's mentality was, okay, I've given birth twice. One of them was to twins. I've raised special needs kids. I've had cancer twice. I've done through this and this and this. The world's reaction to COVID would have she would not have responded well. <laughs> yeah, put it that way. And uh, so, in a way, I guess it was God's blessing to her to bring her home to Him, uh, so that she didn't have to endure all that. Yeah. Wow. So here you are. You go from a man, a father, a husband, living in a circus for for all those years, to then the kids are out of the home. It's you and your wife. Mm-hmm. And now it's just you at home. What was that like for you? The the grieving process, the just overcoming it. So uh, imagine that you're just driving down the street 
and you're going about 70 miles an hour and everything's fine. And all of a sudden you realize you just drove off a cliff <laughs> and there's no more street below there. It kind of had that feeling. So yes. we, uh, in the course of a, a couple, just a couple of years on a given night, we would have seven people in our house. So there would be Carol and me, our three children. And then we would have two attendants, one each for, for Paige and Mia helping with them which was a blessing, which was, was very nice. So, but that's seven people in the house. Yes. <laughs> in the course of a couple of years, we went from seven to, to one to me. Yes. And that, that was a shock to the system. Uh, something uh, interesting happened. I, uh, so Carol had passed away and uh, Blair, it was the, living in Nashville at the time and come back for her, her mom's service. And then, uh, and then went back home and we're now a, a couple months after Carol had passed. And uh, I, uh, was in my old house, in the house that we raised the kids in. And I uh, realized it was like six o'clock at night. And I'm thinking, you know, I need to make something for dinner. And I sat there for a moment and realized I could not remember the last time I had had dinner. Okay. Now, if you looked at me, you will realize I have not missed many meals. Okay. <laughs> so for me not to remember what the last time I had dinner was weird. So I started unpacking this in my head and I realized what it, very quickly what had happened. So over the years, I've eaten at lunch by myself a million times and you know, still do. No, no big deal. Over the years, I've been on business trips and had dinner by myself. No big deal. I could not remember in the course of basically 30 years, the number of times. And when I say I could remember, I don't. I, I, it maybe happened once in 30 years when I had dinner alone in my own house. It never happened because Either Carol was there or the kids were there. Yep. And and it was weird. And I just didn't like it. I didn't like that feeling. And I think my brain subconsciously told my body not to be hungry. So I was eating lunch, as I always had, no big deal. But I think my body was telling my brain not to be hungry at night. So I unintentionally put myself on an intermittent fasting diet. Yes. And and as I realized that, I, I didn't realize, well, you know, my, my pants are a little bit looser. So that was uh, that was kind of an aha revelation was the the way the mind can work in those situations. Now we're talking about what happened after after Carol died. So I mentioned she passed away on February 11th, 2020. So it was a few days before Valentine's Day. And uh, Blair came back from Nashville for her mom's service and so on. And Valentine's Day comes up the 14th. And she and her, her then boyfriend, now husband, uh, wanted to go out. I'm like, that's cool. Go ahead and do that. So I'm now by myself on Valentine's Day, three days after my best friend, arguably my only friend, has passed away. And I, I'm feeling sad, understandably, sad and lonely. And I uh, go to a local grocery store across the street from my house. And I walk in there and I'm like, well, woe is me. You know, life sucks. You know, Carol's gone. My only friend is gone. We've been, the, this would have been our 33rd, 34th Valentine's together, you know. This is terrible. I'm walking through the store feeling, woe is me, and all sad and depressed. And then I get to aisle nine, the hair care aisle. I'm not sure if that hair care is relevant in the story, but it happens to be in aisle nine where everything changed in an instant. I opened up my eyes and I kind of had this, this aha moment where everything was positive and upbeat. And again, that like that feeling on that Saturday morning where everything was like, wow, this is this is good. And I, I stopped thinking, okay, what just happened? I believe God revealed two things to me there in aisle nine 
when I was being all depressed and sad, revealed two things to me with absolute clarity. Number one was Carol's doing great. She's doing a lot better than the rest of us. You know, she is experiencing what all Christians aspire to. She is experiencing uh, God in his greatness. She's at the throne of God, worshiping him and not having to deal with cancer and not having to deal with raising kids or any of the stuff that we're not having to deal with COVID, not having to deal with any of that stuff. She's doing great. So it was as though God released me from having to mourn my wife because you don't need to mourn someone who's doing, doing great. So that was number one. Number two was that, okay, so number one had to do with her. Number two had to do with me. And it was this. I was, what, 55 at the time, had been married for 30 years. And so I'm 55, married for 30 years. God will, and I mean that literally. I've got hopefully another 30 ahead of me. So I'm not even halfway done yet, right? Yeah. Okay. For the first time in my adult life, had virtually no obligations and responsibilities. I was barely responsible for myself. Carol was now with God. Blair was off, independent. Paige and me were in their group home. So they were all taken care of. I was not responsible for anybody any longer. And I remember sitting there thinking or standing there in the aisle thinking, huh, well, that's not a bad place to be. (laughs) I, I quite literally, for the first time in my adult life, can quite literally do whatever I want. Huh. Yes. So Carol is with God, having a much better experience than any of us are. She's with God. Paige and me are set up in their group home where they're being, where they're continuing to grow and being proactively challenged and so on. And they were also still in school. So they're doing great. Blair is independent out of college. Huh. Okay. So I launched what I refer to as Clay 2.0. <laughs> and nothing wrong with the 1.0 version. Yeah. But it was the very traditional father, husband, advocate, you know, all that, all that stuff. And nothing wrong there. Learned a lot. And provide a great, a great grounding, of course, but but Clay 2.0 may be maybe different than what uh, uh, the the 1.0 version, and that's okay. So that uh, then led to me, you know, selling my house that I'd raise the kids. There, there was people say the craziest things. Yeah, they, whoever they are, yeah, they say, well, when you lose someone close to you, you lose a spouse. Yeah, you shouldn't make any major decisions for like a year. First off, who are they? <laughs> who, are, who are they? And you run this, you run this, and you see this in other parts of life. You know, people give great. Well, they say, well, okay, who are they? I want names and I want to know their credentials <laughs> for, having a, for having an opinion on my life. Okay. Well, I ignore they. And yes. because there was no way on this green earth that I was going to live in the five bedroom house that I had raised my family in, that my wife died in our master bedroom. There was no way I was going to stay in that house just because people thought I should wait a year to No, So I sold my house as quickly as I could. Moved into an entertainment district here in, in Plano, Texas called Legacy West, which is kind of an uh, upscale urban thing and lots of people, restaurants and, and so on. So just a totally different experience. Looking back at it, I may have also been going through a midlife crisis. I don't know. But, <laughs> but regardless, the, the Clay 2.0 needed to change, change his environment. So did had that move. And then uh, a friend of mine over the years had, had told me, Clay, you really need to write a book because these crazy life experiences. And I have a hopefully generally positive attitude that maybe people can benefit from. So decided to, uh, to start tackling the book thing. And, and there you go. So that brings us to where we are today. Wow. 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 Clay, man, I got to say just one thing is, you know, 
if no one can take anything else away from our interview today, it's the fact that in this life, in the midst of the storms, we can have a good life if we choose to. And we can choose to be happy and we can choose to see the bright side of the darkness because you have. And I listen to you and I think to myself, just again, like this is a guy who had everything falling apart. And yet on aisle nine, he reinvented himself. He put on a new pair of boots. He changed into 2.0 and he embraced life again. And I, again, I said it earlier about applauding you. Again, I applaud you for for having the courage, the strength, and the faith to do that. Kevin, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that that's very kind. And uh, you talk about the, the the happiness piece. There's, I've started to go out and, and talk to people about the, not just the book, but also the the underpinning of the story, which uh, really is exactly what you just hit on. And and I, I appreciate that. And that is happiness is a choice. And that's what I titled the presentation as: is happiness is a choice. And yeah. I uh, I circle back to a conversation that I had probably about a year after Carol passed. So the, the, the comic relief of the book is the, the final chapter, which is the, the joys of dating in your mid fifties. <laughs> I got to tell you, the world's changed a lot in 30 years. And in terms of that, that, you know, here I was you know, last time I was on a date, I was I just moved out of my parents' house and I was 21 years old and we didn't have dating apps or, you know, we did, we met people the old fashioned way through, through friends. You know? <laughs> and uh, 33 years later, it's a little different. Anyway, so I, I, I chronicle a lot of that, but I, I describe a conversation that I had with a, a woman, which was particularly meaningful. I was having this conversation. She wanted to hear, hear my story and I shared it, the, the edited version. And she made a comment. She said, well, we all have experiences and challenges, baggage and drama. And I replied, well, yes and no. We all have experiences and challenges. That is absolutely true. Baggage and drama, however, <laughs> are optional. Yes. It's all in how you look at it. And again, happiness is a choice. So sadly, there, there are people who I think, I don't know if they enjoy their baggage and drama, but they get very enamored by it. <laughs> you know, they, uh, they, they, they like swimming in it and they'll swear they don't. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll say that, no, I don't know, I, it's just it's so much difficult, so hard. And I'm like, okay, well, it's hard. Got it. Yeah, life's hard. Got it. Okay. Everybody's life is hard. I'm not a fan of doing comparisons. And and, and thank you for the graciousness that you offered a moment ago about my story, which some people may compare that to others and say that my story is, is harder or more challenged than others. I'm not going to say that because I don't know what another person's walk is. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's an old, um, how old it is, but it's been around for a few years, uh, axiom of um, everyone you know is going through a crisis that you know nothing about. So be kind. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Yes. Again, as, as the comment was made, we all have experiences and challenges. And some people, through through God's grace, are given more <laughs> given more challenges than others. That's, that's another another thing that I, I describe that people look at me like I've got three heads. When we talk about blessings, sometimes you know God blesses us with things that we consider positive, right? So good things, so jobs and families and vacations or whatever. So so God blesses us in those ways. I think God also blesses us with challenges, and that's how we grow. I mean, think about it. We, we tend to grow through, or we grow faster and more heartily 
through the difficulties in our lives, not through the easy things in our lives. And I think that quite often God may either instigate a challenge or more often than not, I think he chooses not to intervene. And him choosing not to intervene is is part of his plan to let us in have us endure that challenge so that we are then stronger on the other side. And in, in my situation uh, with Paige and Mia, he, he allowed them to have their disabilities because his plan was for my family to help others like them in different ways that we would have never imagined otherwise. I truly believe that was part of his plan. And because he was involved in that, because he consciously allowed that to happen, which again, part of his plan, that makes it good. That makes it a blessing even though there were days where it didn't feel like a blessing. <laughs> it was yes. like, again, I've, I've described a lot of the challenges I won't take through again, but yeah, th- through a lot of that, it did not feel like a blessing. You may not realize that until after the fact, but um, again, that's why God's smarter than we are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Clay, talk to me a little bit about, about the book. So God's plan, our circus, came out in January. It is available on Amazon.com as well as BarnesandNoble.com. Shared in there some, some of the things that I've uh, described here this morning. It's, a, I think, a pretty easy read. And uh, it's intended to use humor and faith to help people who are going through some, some difficult challenges to understand that uh, God is always with us. And as we were just describing, it's our choice if we want to Look for the positive, or simply, you know, soak in the negative, and uh, and again, there's a fair amount of humor in it. The uh, or the opening uh, scene is my uh, future wife on the evening she and I met, and me perhaps uh, behaving uh, inappropriately. It's it is a PG rated book, so you don't yes. need to worry about that. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that there are very few other uh, disability or faith focus books that open the way, the way mine does. But again, it's part of that, uh, that uplifting kind of comedic uh, spirit that I wanted to inspire in there. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Last question for you. What is behind the saying that life is too important to be taken seriously? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Life is too important to uh, be taken seriously. I've, I've used that axiom. I've had that on my Facebook page forever. I think it is, obviously life is important, but sometimes we are so tempted to get caught up in the drama and in the baggage and do this whole woe is me thing. And sometimes we just need to step back and look at our own situations and just laugh. I saw something on uh, on the internet uh, the other day. I think it was Ricky Gervais, the comedian, who's kind of controversial in some ways, but I guess this quote's being attributed to him. He said, uh, you chose to be insulted. You chose to think it was insulting. I chose to think it was funny. That's why my life is happier than yours. <laughs> and think about it. There are a lot of people who choose to be insulted by everything right now. I guarantee you in this conversation that you've been so gracious to, to offer me, I, I have insulted somebody. I just know it. I don't know who or what. I, just, <laughs> I will sleep well either way. Yes. But but there are a lot of people uh, yeah, who choose to choose to be insulted or choose to, to dwell on the negative. But then there are those of us who don't. And be blunt, our lives are happier <laughs> as a result. And uh, and it brings us back to that. It's it's a matter of choice. So, so that's why I'm saying that, you know, life is life is important, but it's too important to be taken seriously because you can grossly overthink things and weave conspiracies into every turn that there, there's no benefit from that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. 
Clay, man, I want to thank you, dude, so much for for not just being on the podcast, but for literally having a conversation that combines seriousness with sadness, with just life lessons that are done in the most heartfelt yet brutally honest way possible. And man, I just don't think anybody else could bring the heat like you did. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've I've enjoyed our time together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, Clay, thank you. And for you listening today, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and even more so, I hope that you've really listened and taken some things away to maybe influence your own life. And remember this, when life is hard, it's not over. Every day is a new day. When the sun rises, that's just a signal that a new beginning has begun. And maybe you just need to take a walk on aisle nine and see what your 2.0 version has in store for you. This is Kevin Lowe with Grit, Grace, and Inspiration. Get out there and take on the day.